You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans chapter 10, and uh, for the sake of time, we're going to read verses 4 through 17. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Go ahead and be seated. An evangelist and a pastor are out hunting. When suddenly out of nowhere, a grizzly bear appears. They sprint back to their hut as fast as they can with the bear in close pursuit. The evangelist gets there first and pulls open the front door. The pastor goes hurtling inside with the bear close behind, whereupon the evangelist slams the door, shutting it from the outside. There's an anguished cry as the pastor screams, What are you doing? To which the evangelist replies, I just bring them in. Once they're inside, they're your responsibility. (laughs) As we get into the subject today of the indispensable necessity of evangelism, the topic of evangelical conjures up Christian Taliban for some. There's typically little to no affection and little to no intercession as we go about this world with the glorious good news of redemption through Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 21, we read about one of the first deacons and how just as promised in the pastoral epistles, those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves great boldness in the faith. And lo and behold, the deacon Philip is now referred to as Philip the Evangelist. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we read of these different offices within the church, one of them being evangelists, being part of the equipping of the body for the work of the ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Evangelism as a Christian is essential and unavoidable. J.I. Packer said rightly, if one preaches the Bible biblically, one can't help preach the gospel all the time. And as a result, every sermon will be, as Bolton said, at least by implication, evangelistic. But when we speak of evangelistic sermons or even evangelistic conversations, we're talking about preaching to unbelievers with the hope of their conversion. In evangelistic conversations, we address sinners in their sin, clearly expressing that they are helpless and hopeless, and that Christ is their only way out of sin and into salvation. The Berlin World Congress on Evangelism put forth this definition in 1966. Evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ, the only redeemer of men, according to the scriptures. 
with the purpose of persuading condemned and lost sinners to put their trust in God by receiving and accepting Christ as Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit and to serve Christ as Lord in every calling of life and in the fellowship of His church, looking toward the day of His glorious coming. Packer goes on to say in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he defines evangelism as presenting Christ Jesus and his work in relation to the needs of fallen men and women who are without God as father and under the wrath of God as judge. Evangelism within scripture is preached and it's taught and it's explained that everyone is an evangelist declaring the good news. As the Oxford Dictionary defines evangelism, someone who is zealous and advocates a cause. That describe you, zealous and an advocate of some cause. The world has evangelists all over it that are worldly at nature. Some are evangelists of computers. PC versus Mac, iPhone versus Droid, Chevy versus Ford or Dodge. If you have cable TV, you've watched Jamie Oliver and his food revolution. He's a food evangelist, combating fresh food and bad food with nutrition and veggies. He's combating, he's preaching the gospel. But there's a glaring lack of evangelism and preaching the gospel in our churches, both from the pulpit and from the street. Even in churches such as our own who claim to be centered upon the gospel. And so often people say, we don't preach these evangelistic sermons because no one comes. But no one comes because we don't preach evangelistic sermons. Christopher Wright says the whole gospel must be, first of all, a Christ-centered story to be told, a hope-filled message to be proclaimed, a revealed truth to be defended, a new status to be received, a transformed life to be lived, and a divine power to be celebrated. So often we think of evangelism as tracked, two minutes, done. Check. Move on to the next one. But as Paul preached the gospel and really contextualized the gospel in Acts chapter 17, he preached with his authoritative heralding. He taught and explained to the Athenians and he reasoned. Reasoning speaks of hearing objections. It's okay to have objections and to hear them, but then he would answer those objections, showing Christ to be the truth doesn't go away with both, gun, both guns blazing, blasting the culture of Greece. You stupid people, I can't believe this place. I would never bring my family here. Where is the nearest ship? J.I. Packer said when Paul preached the gospel formally or informally in the synagogue or in the streets to Jews or to Gentiles, to a crowd or to one man, what he did was to teach, engaging attention, Capturing interests, setting out the facts, explaining their significance, solving difficulties, answering objections, and showing how the message bears on life. One problem, as John Stott says, that the church has lost confidence in the gospel, that it is indeed the power of God unto salvation. But as you look at verse 13, you see why Paul would say in chapter 1, verse 16, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because here in clarity is the gospel. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be sozo in the Greek. Shall be saved. Saved from what? Excuse me, you're accusing me that I need to be saved of something. Well, Galatians 3.22 says that the scripture has confined all under sin. We know this well from 3.23 of Romans, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That every mouth would be stopped and the whole world would become guilty before God. Because we've all sinned, because we've 
all fallen short of the glory of God, enter in Romans 5, 9, that we can be saved by the wrath through Jesus. Having been justified by his blood. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. Saved from the wrath of God upon sinners. And saved towards good works that are glorifying to your creator. The way of salvation here in verse 13 is laid before us in the plainest terms. As Charles Spurgeon often tells his testimony, he would say, This seemed like a lifeline thrown to a sinking man. I clung to it, and it became a life buoy to me. This life buoy of whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from their sin, saved from the wrath of a holy, righteous, just God, and saved to eternal life. This word, whosoever, it's a wide word. It's a very wide word. It's like a great Wide door for big sinners. Whosoever, whoever, if you would call upon the name of the Lord, you are not excluded. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. The red man, white man, yellow man, black man, and the man who's not a man, every man of every sort, And who's of no sort at all is included in the whosoever. This whosoever, I'm so glad that it doesn't say that if Rory Blake Rogers calls on the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. And why is that? Why wouldn't I want it to say that? Because odds are there's another Rory Blake Rogers out there somewhere. The poor soul, you know, and and I would begin to wonder, does this really mean me or is it some Irishman? This whosoever would call, you might underline that word call. We've all called and nowadays we've got a phone in every pocket and every purse. We've all said, hi, hello, help or have mercy. And those who call upon the Lord shall, not if, might, or maybe, but shall be saved. Well, that kind of launches us into the text that we want to camp on today. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Spurgeon calls verses 14 through 15 the whole machinery of salvation. Six main verbs. Being saved, calling on him, believing in him, hearing him, preaching, and sending. First of all, we find calling on him. To call speaks of invoking for aid. Or even for worship, it means to appeal. And it really speaks of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That for the rest of our life, we would call on the name of the Lord. The next time you're in temptation, facing that sin right in front of you, the rubber meets the road. You can call on Him to be saved. But there's no calling without believing. Calling on his name presupposes that they know and believe in which name they call upon. That one who's died, that one who is risen, that one who is Lord. And so calling says there's got to be believing. So believing in him, Mark 16, 15, in the Great Commission account of Mark, he says, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature He who believes and is baptized will be saved. What's the main thing? Baptism or believing here? But he who does not believe will be condemned. Would you ask God to save you if you didn't believe that you needed to be saved? The one who calls on the name of the Lord realizes their inadequacy, their depravity, and their utter need for a savior. Would we call 
for help from someone that we didn't think would help us or could help us. Of course not. The mere fact that we're calling anybody for help makes us think that in some degree, some degree at all, they are going to be helpful to our situation. And if we believe this much, even in the littlest sense about Jesus and his saving work, if we have faith like a child, if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we'll be saved. Wishing, of course, there'd be more faith. But even this small amount would get you to heaven. When you call to him, you believe who he is. You believe his power. You believe he hears you and you trust him. In John chapter 9, verse 35, we have the blind man who had been healed by Jesus and then immediately excommunicated from the temple for the joy of being healed. Jesus heard they'd cast him out, and when he'd found him, said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? I think our hearts would break and I think our hearts would really get this godly affection if we knew how many people, even who are here in this room right now, who've never heard the message of the gospel, the people that you work with who've never even understood who is the Son of God, that I even could believe in him. This is a man who was raised in Jewish culture, raised in the temple, but there's no believing. If there's no hearing, this third verb set forth for us, hearing speaks of coming into information and it's in a wide sense. Hearing can mean so much in these day and age. It can mean literally hear, an audio resource. It could mean read or to see. It speaks of learning, learning that leads to believing. It's not a distinct act of the will alone that brings faith, but hearing brings faith. Spurgeon said, listen then, listen. The more often you hear the gospel, the better. I mean you who have not yet believed it. As you are hearing it, you may come to believe it. It may be insensibly, as it were, stealing over you. Having heard it and heard it and heard it again and again, you may at last find yourself believing that Jesus suffered on the cross for you. I recommend all seekers after Christ to hear the word often. Hearing that leads to believing, that leads to calling, that leads to salvation. There's no hearing without the preacher The preacher means, or preaching speaks of to herald, as of an old school public town crier. To herald especially the divine truth of the gospel. Back in the day, the major means of transporting information or transmitting news in the public proclamations in the city were in the square or the marketplace by the town crier. There would be no heralding without the heralder. So who should preach? Who should do this heralding? The man in full-time ministry at the church? Or the Sunday school teacher? Who should do this preaching? Well, everyone who can preach should do so. Those who can preach about Ford versus Dodge should preach about the kingdom of God. Those who can preach Or open their mouth. We hear so often Christian men or women who can speak with much knowledge in the subject of football or baseball or politics or science, but never open up their mouth to speak about Jesus. If he can speak on the subject of Obamacare or gun control or what he saw last night on America's Got Talent, then he can speak on the subject of salvation. Everyone who knows the gospel ought to make it known. This is not only a job for priests. Correction, it is only a job for priests. But guess what? Revelation tells us that he has made the saints, kings, and priests to glorify his name forever and ever. Boom, you're in. You're a priest to herald. But there's no preaching without sending. 
In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16 through 21, with the subject of the watchman, the subject of the, the town crier, we have this prophetic word to Ezekiel. It came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman, kind of that town crier for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning for me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way. Excuse me, I skip a line there. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you've delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he's done, shall not be remembered but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. And so remember, the preacher who enables and allows the hearing, which allows the believing, which allows the calling, which allows the saving, And when the preacher has told the story of the cross, he's rid of his responsibility. And if that person perishes, it won't be because they did not know. It won't be because they perished in ignorance. And it won't be because of your neglect in teaching him. Who does this preaching? Well, note what it does not say. It does not say this folk has to have doctor of divinity or popularity in pastorship. Man, God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. As 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. You've got this preaching that led to believing. But it was a foolish message. I mean, the message itself is foolishness to those that are perishing. And when the fool preaches the foolish message, man, it means only one person gets the glory. It's God. And one chapter later in 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, even he himself, his speech and his preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And if you've ever opened your mouth, you know it's not about you. If you've ever been given the opportunity to preach publicly, you know it's not about you. We come in absolute reliance on the sufficiency of the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? He is always faithful. He's always faithful. His past faithfulness demands our present trust. As you observe his faithfulness in empowering you to be a bold witness, then the next time you go to open your mouth about the gospel, you remember. He was faithful that last time in the airport. I believe he's going to be faithful here at Dutch Brothers. He was faithful last time at Dutch Brothers. I believe here at my daughter's soccer game, he is going to be faithful to bring the word. He was faithful in my daughter's soccer game. His past faithfulness demands our present trust. His faithfulness in using the weak and the foolish and the base things and the off-scouring of the world for his fame and for his glory. And so open up your mouth. Preach. Speak to an individual if you can. If you can't speak to an individual, then blog. Write out the gospel. If you can't write, then give a tract. But what we do need to keep doing is keep on making Christ known. As Spurgeon said, up with you men and Christians, publish Christ again. Publish Christ again. Well, Rory, no, you said that it's the sent preacher. 
that brings about hearing. And frankly, I haven't been sent. I haven't had anyone lay hands on me. I haven't had any dreams or vision. Be careful here. Be careful. Don't say to yourself, I'm not sent, and so I will not speak. As Piper says, say, here I am, Lord, send me. Send me to an unreached people group. Send me to the urban neighborhoods of Minneapolis. Send me across the street in my perishing suburb. Send me across the office. Send me to the telephone today. Send me across this room once service is over. Do you have that cry like Isaiah? Here I am, Lord. I know I'm not a preacher. I'm not a gifted orator. I about wet my pants when I think about preaching the gospel to people. But Lord, who's going to hear? Who's going to believe? Who's going to call? Who's going to be saved? Here I am, Lord. You created these lips. You've created this voice. You've created this mind. you created this heart. Let these be that that declare the gospel for you. Here I am, Lord. Send me. In verse 15, how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. To preach, there is a divine sending that takes place. Paul says, I wasn't ordained by men but I was ordained by the power of God. This sense means being clothed with divine power. Clothed with divine power. That it would be our habit to always be looking for souls because we're clothed with the divine power. We have the Holy Spirit upon us, as Jesus said. When he comes upon you, baptizing you with the Holy Spirit, You will be witnesses and martyrs for me in Prineville, in Crook County, into the uttermost parts of the world. And Jesus prays in John 17, I'm not asking for these only, but I'm asking for those who are going to believe in me through their word. These men that hung out with Jesus for three years, Jesus prayed and said, there are going to be people that are going to hear the word through these 12. There are going to be those who believe through their word. And it didn't end with John passing away in Ephesus, the last disciple. It hasn't ended. In Antioch, the way was first called Christians which means little Christs. And every one of us have been sent out as little Christs, empowered by the Holy Spirit, not left as orphans, but having the helper in and upon us. We get to be part of this prayer. You can enter your name right there. This prayer is for you. Those that will hear your word. In Acts chapter 8, verse 30, we read of Philip the Evangelist, who had been in Samaria, where revival had been taking place, when the Lord calls him to go down to the desert. You want me to go from revival down to desert? You're straight tripping, God. No, he went. He didn't ask questions. He joyfully went. And when he got to the desert, there's a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch, the treasurer of Ethiopia, And the Lord says, go and overtake that royal chariot. I don't know if you've seen Robin Hood lately or Snow White and the Huntsman. Generally not a good idea to just go after chariots of royalty. But he did it in obedience and he ran after and overtook the chariot. And when he ran to him, Acts 8.30, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And this Ethiopian acts like this happens every day. And he just says, how can I? (laughs) Unless someone guides me. And so he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was out of Isaiah 53. They read, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? 
for his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or some other man? And then Philip opened up his mouth and beginning with this scripture, preached Jesus to him. That we might be available to be inconvenienced by the Holy Spirit to get up out of our comfort zone and go across the room or go across the street or go across the office or go across the county when the Holy Spirit says, go. Philip the evangelist led by example. Titus chapter one, verse three says that in due time, God has manifested his word through preaching. God has manifested his word, not just from the pulpit, but in little mini conversations, times of heralding, times of teaching, times of reasoning. And you can be a part of that. You can be a part of these beautiful feet that we read of who preach the gospel of peace. They bring good tidings of glad things. Now, it's no secret, beautiful feet are all the rage these days, with open-toed shoes and sandals being popular. But apparently, they were popular in Paul's day and Isaiah's day. As the prophet speaks on behalf of God in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, little different twist on it. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them that bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation who says in Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah speaks of the good news coming as word came about of a release from Babylonian captivity. And he looks up in just this pictorial moment in Isaiah that these heralders are coming down the mountain to say, freedom, good news, peace. How beautiful are those feet. But beautiful feet mean more than Treating athletes' feet or trimmed up painted toenails, tan lines from your flip-flops, or getting your paraffin wax treatment on a regular basis. I've never done that. To our Lord, beautiful feet might even be a bit soiled, unkempt, mangy, or hobbit-like. But they're the means by which the gospel of Jesus Christ covers miles. They appear to have spent the day in a day spa getting pedicured. In the eyes of the Lord, those that preach the gospel of peace have gorgeous feet. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 15, one of the pieces of armor that we equip ourselves with regularly is that we put as shoes for our feet putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In the morning when you rise and you place the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, do you shod your feet with the gospel of peace? Do you realize the mission that God has given you, the commission that God has given you to open up your mouth and to share the gospel, to share the good news. These beautiful feet, literally in the Greek, it means that beautiful means belonging to the right hour or season. These beautiful feet are timely and flourishing. And our prayer is that today God would just give us the feet of an evangelist. That for such a time as this, God would be bringing you here to Calvary Chapel to learn of his heart for the lost, to learn of his heart, to share that Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to all who believe. This word of faith that we read about today, the word of faith that's near people, Moses prophesied, it's near people. And if a preacher would just come and explain to them and reason, many would be saved. The second Corinthians 5.18 says that all things are of God who's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. He's made us stewards of the gospel of redemption. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. He's made each of us ambassadors, representatives of a sovereign nation to bring the peace, to declare reconciliation. Murray was a preacher at Westminster Seminary, and he asked William McKenzie of Christian Focus what the difference is between a lecture and a preaching. After five wrong answers, while they were driving down the highway, Murray answered for him, saying, preaching is a personal, passionate plea. In what sense, Mackenzie said, and Murray said, in the sense of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I beseech you, I plead with you, I urge you, I entreat you, be reconciled to God. Have you ever pled with somebody to repent of their sins? Have you ever wept with somebody while preaching the gospel as an ambassador who's been committed the ministry of reconciliation? Have you ever done that? Have you ever fasted and prayed for the lost that you might have affection and intercession a heart's desire in prayer, as 10.1 says in Romans, that Prineville might be saved. Crook County might be saved. If you do do that, if you open your mouth, you've got some beautiful feet that declare these glad tidings, these good things. Verse 16, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? This quote from Isaiah is out of that messianic passage of the suffering Savior. Who's believed a report of this Messiah who is slaughtered? Who's beaten and stripped and whipped? Who's believed it? In a sense, Isaiah here is going back to the master and telling him what the listeners had to say about the message. After you open your mouth to the lost, and maybe they do respond to the gospel, receiving the salvation of their souls. Or maybe they reject the gospel. Do you go back to the master and say, Lord, who's believed our report? And this guy over at the castle park, God, his name was Ryan, and he believed our report. Oh, this guy over here at 7-Eleven, man, he was getting a slurpee, Lord, and you let me preach the gospel. And he began to weep, and I've been getting to disciple him. And Lord, he's believed the report. But this gal, this gal over at the swimming pool, Lord, she's hard. She's hard, and I just was obedient, but she's, she's resisting God. And Lord, I pray that you would soften her. Give me another opportunity to share with her and reason with her. In verse 17, so then faith, it comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Or as the Phillips translation says it, belief you see, can only come from hearing the message, and the message is the word of Christ. The faith that comes to believe in him for salvation, to call on him for sanctification, comes from hearing the word of God, the message of Christ, the word of faith, it's all put out plainly in this chapter, that has come from a sent preacher. You know, as Boise comes this week, it was a privilege to get to fellowship with them in April at a leadership conference where the whole theme was that there's a harvest that's white and ready to be reaped. And we spent time praying and crying out for Prineville and coming back, we've sung songs that were written for that conference and we've fasted and we've prayed that God would move this week as evangelists go out to make known the mystery of the gospel. We camped out in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, 
where it says Jesus went about to all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary. Anybody here come to Jesus when they were weary? You're just like, man, I was weary when God got a hold of me. <laughs> I was weary when he took the burden off of me. Any of you feel scattered when you were saved or like a sheep without a shepherd? Jesus was moved with compassion for these folks. In verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The evangelists are few. The servants are few. And so what is the remedy for that? Huge harvest, great crop that needs to be cut, Laborers are needed. What is the answer? Well, just muster up a lot of courage and a lot. Just go out there and cut it. Mm -mm. Jesus says, therefore, pray. Pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. A little different take on a similar passage. John's chapter 4 verse 35 says, do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. Don't even say Thursday, Thursday, Boise's coming, I'll have a lot of new friends that we're going to just go out, we're going to preach the gospel. Thursday, Lord, empower me for Thursday. And then we leave here and we go out to lunch and we hang out in the community and, oh, Thursday, I'm going to go witness to that guy. No, today is the day of salvation. Today, look up, the fields are white with the harvest. Speaking of fields that are white with the harvest, one of the great evangelists of the Great Awakening during the 18th century was a man whose name was George Whitfield. George Whitefield. I mean, his name is like prophetic. He was a man who took the gospel message literally out into the fields. When he first came over to America, he was permitted to preach in some churches, but he soon was disliked by the clergy, and so they kicked him out of the churches. So he went to the fields and began preaching to the farmers and the miners, and a great crowd would gather to hear the message. Benjamin Franklin calculated that Whitfield's message could be heard clearly by 30,000 people at one time. When you get kicked out of your venue of ministry, what do you do? Go pout? Go quit? Or do you go to a field where no one can tell you what to do? Ben Franklin would also say it was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners and behavior of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Ben Franklin was not saved. He became a friend with George Whitfield and he would hear the gospel many times. But he noticed the transforming power of the gospel. And I pray that after this week, that by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, men, women, children would be saved. And that as we walk through the streets of Prineville, we'll hear K-Happy or K-Love or whatever those radio stations are. We'll hear Chris Tomlin blaring out. That there would be noticeable gospel transformation in the community. The essence is seen in these verses if we put these six verbs in the opposite order. Those who Christ sends preach. People hear, hearers believe, believers call, and those who call are saved. In 1972, 1872, D.L. Moody met the evangelist Henry Varley. It was Varley who said to Moody, 
Moody, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Varley never remembered making that statement, but Moody never forgot it. Does that describe you? If not today, let's offer our lives up fresh as a sacrifice to the Lord that we would be completely consecrated to him. Moody would later say, I go where I can do the most good. That is what I'm after. It is souls I want. It's souls I want. And it's souls that Jesus wants. Alistair Begg says, you either evangelize or you fossilize. And Whitfield said in a similar thing, I had rather wear out than rust out. He told a friend who told him he'd preached the gospel too often. So may we have mouths like Philip and like Peter who open up and speak and say, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Chapter 10 of Romans verses 14 and 15 is a great grand text that has spurred many on into the mission field. Young man named Bobby Moffat, who had the nickname Wee Little Bobby, was called to Africa and changed the course of Africa because he wrestled with this passage in Romans 10. David Livingston later on heard Bobby Moffat at a home preaching and speaking of the smoke of a thousand villages that had yet to hear the word of God or utter the name of Christ. How shall they hear without a preacher? William Carey has been called the father of modern missions and spearheaded missions to India. He was a little man. They should call him wee little William Carey. And he was a cobbler by trade. He had a huge map on his shoe store where he would always pray with a burdened heart for India. He then went to a missions conference and spoke out about his burdened heart for the souls of India, where a senior man rebuked him openly and publicly and said, when God wants to save the heathen in India, he'll do it without your help or mine. Adoniram Judson, back in the 1780s, was a Baptist missionary who became the first North American Protestant missionary in Burma. It took him 12 years to see his first 18 converts. But by the time he died, he'd left 100 churches with over 8,000 members. And now the Baptist churches of Myanmar celebrate Judson Day every year to commemorate his arrival. But it all started with Judson in reading Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? Hudson Taylor in the 1830s, was the father of Chinese missions. He spent more than 50 years in China as a missionary. He's known by his respect for the Chinese culture. He was often criticized back in England at the time for dressing like a Chinaman in his efforts to blend in while sharing the gospel. But his dressing in Chinese fashion made him accepted with the people when he preached. He too wrestled with the vision he had of a million Chinese a month dying without Christ and would say, how shall they hear without a preacher? Most believe Hudson Taylor laid the groundwork of the underground revival in China. Charlotte Moon, known as Little Lottie Moon, everyone's little, can't be a missionary unless you're a little dude was a rebellious high school student who was then skeptical in college, but went to a Bible meeting and yielded her life to Christ. Immediately, she was called to China. She went by herself and went further into China than, China than anyone had ever been before. She would feed the homeless, feed pregnant women, and with the little money that she had, would have 17 homeless girls in her apartment at once that she would nurse back to health. A Confucius sect leader there heard that she preached on fire from, a hot, from on high and asked her to come to speak to their village. While she preached, this old man got saved. And then his cousin, Li Ting, was saved, who became the national evangelist in 19th century China. What God accomplished through one college girl who said, how shall they hear without a preacher? You guys know Jim Elliott? who was an Oregonian from Portland. 
and his buddies, Ed McCauley, Nate St. Roger Uberry, and Peter Fleming, college graduates who had such a heart for the unreached people groups, the Indians of South America. Jim himself being a great student and an athlete, really good wrestler, was told that the world needs pastors and Bible teachers. Let someone else go be a missionary. But Jim Elliott would say, he's no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And you guys know the story that all of those missionary boys were slaughtered down there by the Alka Indians, but the wives in their grief sang out, it is well with my soul, and went back to these tribes, the very tribe that killed their husbands, and led them to Jesus. How shall they hear without a preacher? Bruce Olson, also known as Baruchko, was a 19-year-old man who wrestled with this passage, went to Colombia to the tribal people who'd never even heard the name of Jesus. He was thrust through with the spear, drug into a hut, and left to die. But God was up to something. The chief's son would come in and sneak him food. Later on, the chief died, and so the son brought Bruce out and made him his best friend. This new chief told Bruce, uh, was told by Bruce about a God who was all-powerful and who made the trees and the heavens, and that that very God had a son who died for the people. The whole tribe got saved, and to this day are still powerfully being used, heralding the gospel throughout Colombia. Gladys Howard was a maid in England who had a burden for China, how shall they hear unless someone goes? As she went to her missionary board, they stamped her as unstable and said, we are protecting this agency by not letting this tiny little woman with straight black hair go out on missions. So she went anyways. When she got off the boat at China, she looks across the, across the dock, and what kind of women does she see? Little women with straight black hair. And finally, since it's Olympic season, Eric Little. From 1902 to 1945, Little was probably the best known for this 80s film that we've got, The Chariots of Fire. You know, people focus on his life as this Olympic runner, but the story of Eric Little goes so much deeper than that. He'd been born to uh, missionary parents in North China. His parents were Scottish missionaries serving with the London Missionary Society. And after he was born, he spent his school years in Scotland, but always had a heart for China, and even after he was an, an Olympic athlete, a total champion, he worked out a school leave by going to China and becoming a missionary all through the Japanese invasion of China in World War II, where he died of a brain cancer. Being known throughout the camp as the one that would teach the little kids the Bible. How would they hear? And I got to close with John Patton, actually. He's one of my favorites. John Patton was a Scottish man who had a heart to reach the cannibals in New Hebrides, just off the coast of Australia. As ships came and dropped missionaries off on the island, they watched in horror as men and women were slaughtered and eaten there on the spot on the beach. And John Patton heard about this and said, I'm going there. And they said, John Patton, the cannibals will eat you. And he said, here's the way I look at it. Either I die and the cannibals eat me, or I die and the worms eat me. I'm going to be eaten. Nonetheless, I want to go out serving God. He ended up having a successful ministry in the New Hebrides. And when Patton was dying, one of his final writings in his journal said, New Hebrides, one for Christ. This whole nation now, the New Hebrides Islands, or this whole string of islands is known as a Christian nation to this day. And so may the Lord stir our hearts for evangelism. As Paul writes out in these verses here, man, they've got to hear that they could believe, that they could call, that they could be saved. But how are they going to hear unless the preachers are sent? May we be preachers this week. May we be preachers this afternoon. May we be preachers for the rest of our lives that we could be, as Daniel says in chapter 12, verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Amen.
Why don't you come on up, uh, Joe and, and crew, and we'll close. You can put your Bibles down. You know, Jesus, right before he ascended in Acts chapter 1, he said, just go and wait for me. Wait for me there in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses of me. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we just know that we are powerless, Lord Jesus. We're powerless to open our mouths. We're powerless to have anything great or deep to say or any rebuttals to arguments, even explanations, Lord. We just, we're weak, God. But we're stirred today to be preachers, God. That men and women and children could hear and believe and call on you, Lord. Lord, this week, we just look ahead to just a a week of pouring ourselves out for the gospel, pouring ourselves out for the furtherance of your kingdom. And Lord, more than any energy drink or more than any just great motivational speaking, Lord, we need the power that comes from the Holy Spirit, that we could be witnesses, that we could be martyrs, if it came to that, Lord. Lord, that if we were kicked out of one area, we would be fine going to the fields and preaching. And Lord, we cry out, Lord, that you would just bring revival to Prineville. That you would save the lost. So many men and women who don't have an understanding that they are sinners in need of a savior. So many sinners that don't know what that savior's name is. And Lord, that we'd be able to tell them this week. I pray that you would cast out fear with just the the power of the Holy Spirit working through us, God. And right now, Lord, we ask afresh, Lord, for this fresh, continual filling of the Spirit, Lord, that torrents of living water would pour out of our hearts, Lord. That we might have boldness, courage, to tell people in love that they are sinners. That they've fallen short of God's righteous standards. But that while we were sinners, Christ died for us to be the substitution for our sins. That whoever would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. Saved from their sins, saved from the wrath of God. And save towards eternal life. And as we come today to the communion table, to the Lord's Supper, where He is the embodiment of the broken bread, the pierced bread, He is the embodiment of the poured out blood. You would perhaps come today, if you've come to Calvary Chapel, realizing that you're a sinner and that Christ has died for you. Today, you could come to the communion table, believing what you've heard today, calling on the name of the Lord. You can be saved. And in taking the bread and in taking the cup, you can really, in an intimate way, think and ponder and consider and remember what Jesus has done for you. Just the symbol of Christ coming into you, to your innermost parts, regenerating you, that you might be born again today. And you can respond to Jesus. Just come on up during this last song and take the communion back to your seat and thank him for his sacrifice on the cross. Let's worship. Maybe you would just want to stand and just with your communion, just cry out for that fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon your life, that you could be bold this week.
Maybe you'd stand there with your communion and just thank Jesus for his sacrifice. Thank Jesus for the way that he's made available. Thank Jesus for even sending the watchman to you. That you might believe. Let's respond to Jesus. Let's cry out for more power. Let's thank him for what he's done on the cross through communion. And let's worship. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.